I must admit, it's a tournament that's crept up on me a little bit. Um, you get to the end of a pretty grueling football season, and you realise there's, uh, yeah, there's another football tournament for you to enjoy uh, and to celebrate and acknowledge the fact that the best third place team gets through in the tournament, which often leads to boring, low scoring games. Uh, we've got a third speaker joining us today, Aurel Nazmio from the 21st Group Intelligence Team. Good to have you, Aurel. Hi guys, thanks a lot for having me on. Great, so I thought we'd, I thought we'd dive straight in. Um, firstly, with some uh, predictions. So we'll start with you, Dan, on uh, who we think is going to win the Euros, and then I'll, I'll give my view, and then we'll turn to Aurel, who's got not just a view on who will win the Euros, but how good uh, a team of England right-backs would do in the Euros. But Dan, who's your, who's your pick for the Euros? I... I can't really go further than France. I just I just think their firepower is fantastic and I just feel like they've just got a lot of experienced players that have been there and done that. And, you know, I, I just can't help but loving the fact that they've got two of my most favourite players probably in the last while in, in Kante and Mbappe that I just love watching play football for very different reasons. Yeah, I mean, hard, hard to disagree. A bit, bit of a boring choice, if I'm honest. Uh, hard, 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 to, hard to disagree. Um, I don't know. I I, um, I have always fancied Spain at, at tournaments. And I f- feel like they've done. They've been um, unlucky in some of the tournaments in which they've been eliminated, even like rather humiliatingly or, or surprisingly to to Russia or in the 2014 World Cup or even in, in 2016. So. Yeah, Spain. If I had to put some money down, and having not assessed the models, <laughs> I would go Spain. But Aurel, who who are the twenty first group favourites, and and why is that the case? Yeah, um, yeah. I, as as you say, I'll start on the right backs. I think it's a lot more interesting, uh, a bit more of an interesting story rather than saying the teams that most people know, like a Belgium or Germany. So yeah, we we did a bit of work basically building a team rating full of England right backs, as has been a lot of the discussion. England actually picked four right backs, and then end up. You know, Trent got got injured after all of that, um, all, all, all of that build up to it. But yeah, Finland were to fill 12, uh, 11 right backs. It'd actually be the twelve favourites for the tournament, and would give them about a one percent chance. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that that's the that that'd be my take. It'd probably be a lot more interesting to watch than, than a few other teams, as you say, Omar, after a long and grueling season. Um, and just and, and who it's who, yeah. who, like if you take um, the best position from from a team like, so England obviously got loads of great right backs so other teams that would have like a better chance of winning the Euros with a selection of all their best players from one position yeah yeah great question so I think it'd be yeah France's left winger so Dan might be quite interested in this one maybe picking out another favourite player but yeah I mean the depths that France have in general um, I think they were about first and probably about third as well for sentiments or something so yeah they have a lot of depth they could probably deal with quite, quite a few different teams based on just one position um They'd be on about 1.5% um, chance to, to kind of win the Euros. So, yeah, I, that, that, that'd that be my take on it. But in terms of our model and the actual teams that are going to be playing this year, um, with kind of, we give about four or five teams about an even chance at about 12%. So it's Belgium, uh, Germany, France and England. And Portugal are a bit behind on about uh, 9%. Um, so, yeah, that there is, you know, they're the teams that most people would probably expect as well to be the favourites going into this tournament. And... Obviously, the, the betting markets and the kind of popular opinion is is France's favourites, and that's obviously why 
why Dan's gone gone for them as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, the key question: so France are in, a, in the group of death, really. I mean, it's it's kind of obviously diluted a bit by the fact that three teams go through and, and Hungary are the fourth team, and um, you know have also lost their I think their, their key strike as well. Um, but they, I guess, the the key question that the models have on France is their ability to get out out of that group. I suppose. Yes, spot on on that on, on France. It's quite interesting actually because Hungary, you know, they're probably in that group. They're most likely to finish fourth, but they do have a bit of a chance to finish third should something crazy happen because they are playing. I think two of their games um, at home, and I think Budapest is one of the cities where they might have full capacity. And we have seen that historically, home advantage, especially for international teams, that international tournaments does make quite a significant impact. So we tend to see that teams that play at home. Um, in those tournaments, uh, on home soil, tend to win about 62% of matches, whereas the average is about 48%. So, yeah, I'm just uh, don't count out Hungary, although it would be a, a, a massive task to try and get out of that group. But as you say, finishing third does give them a bit of a opportunity, albeit without their kind of uh, star striker. So Omar, so we've uh, I've done the very uh, unimaginative unimagin- un- uh, selection. The pressure is now on you to suggest someone uh, or a team rather a lot more imaginative that's a little bit left field. Otherwise, um, you're in trouble basically. So hit hit us up. I mean, is Spain is Spain not sufficiently left field? Uh, I haven't won a tournament in a few in a few, uh, which which would have seemed unthinkable a few years ago. Uh, a few, well, a few tournaments ago. Well, or um, was it, were they were they on that in that twelve percent range as well? So Spain would actually be on about nine percent, mm. and it's quite interesting because looking back at Euro twenty sixteen, I think obviously Portugal won in the market had them about four percent, and the teams that are in that kind of bandwidth this uh, this summer is your Poland, Denmark, and Netherlands, and also Croatia are, are a bit just below that. So they're probably your kind of wild cards. Um, at Denmark, I've obviously won it back in ninety two. Uh, albeit got into the tournament in a bit of an unorthodox way, but yeah. yeah no, no one's really talking about the Netherlands. Um, I suppose they haven't made, they didn't make the last two major tournaments, which is probably part of it. But on paper, they obviously have a lot of good players, albeit with, with some injuries. Um, the, the the reason for our, I mean, talk a little Arel, around the reason for how we generate our ratings and, and why we, uh, 20 past group, don't necessarily favour them as you know as much as you might think on paper yeah really interesting question i think kind of you know estimating uh, team ratings for international teams is really difficult for a number of reasons one of which is they don't play that often so if you compare kind of the number of games england have played in the last five years at manchester united it's only about 20 percent. so a very small sample and you tend to see a lot of variance so what we try to do is kind of um build team ratings using historical um, data on kind of match results, but also combine that with our player ratings model. So, um, you know, because if a team have a kind of new generation coming in quite quickly and those players are are at a high level, we can kind of uh, see that that has quite a big impact on the kind of team performance. And we have compared that if you add this kind of player rating into the into the model, it does actually tend to improve kind of our prediction. So we, we kind of tend to go for a, a combination of team and player but as I say, predicting kind of international team performances is, is a very difficult uh, task. If I can just ask um, or a one point there as well is, so we've got those, those teams on, on sort of 12 and 9. Um, outside of, of, obviously, of those sort of uh, headline teams and otherwise, 
Is there anyone in, inside the model that you felt that if they actually got out of that group, obviously we're talking about Hungary to the example, and then could potentially get a favourable uh, round of 16 uh, draw, is there anyone that could sort of make headlines because there's actually a, um, a pathway into the, the later stages of the tournament because of either fortune or being in the right, in the right, um, uh, in the right group at first place? Yeah, great question. I think, like again, Denmark seems to pop up in quite a few models, sometimes ahead of England, which is uh, quite an interesting one. I imagine England fans won't be too happy about. But I think Denmark is an interesting one, primarily because I think they play three of their home games um, at home in Copenhagen. So um, they they have uh, a decent chance, as I say. I think home advantage will actually play quite a critical role in this tournament, I imagine. But again, kind of looking at their team, there isn't too many names in there that you, you, it's not it's not a bad team, but there isn't um, too many players that you think could be able to carry them. Uh, obviously, Christian Eriksen being a key player, but he hasn't had uh, the best seasons at Inter Milan this year. Although he's played a bit more than um, he started the season off. But again, it's I think great. Uh, sorry, Denmark are are a team in there that uh, quite a few models like quite a bit. And again, as I say, the home advantage plays plays a role in that. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is that you've obviously got, you know, clear favourites for each of the groups. Um, so it would be, you know, Italy as the host in A, Belgium in B, uh, Netherlands in C, England in D, Spain in um, E and, and France in, in F. But the odds of all four of those teams coming, sorry, all six of those teams coming top of their groups is really small um, because they all need to essentially get, you know, seven or nine points and they're bound to drop points somewhere. And I think... You know, Belgium certainly aren't quite the team that they were um, uh, two years ago, or th- well, I suppose three years ago now at the World Cup, and, and uh, five years before that with the Euros. Um, and you know, you could easily imagine Denmark getting a draw at home to, to Belgium, um, and both teams ending up on seven points, and, and Denmark maybe having the favourable goal difference because they they ended up with um, you know with with the home games in their favour, and that can suddenly open up. Uh, open up the draw for teams. I also think, again, international football, and Narelle, you raised this before uh, when we were chatting before the show around international football can be incredibly uh, fickle. So I, I, I'm talking out the top of my head here, so I, I might remember this wrong, but I think Denmark played Croatia in the in the World Cup, possibly in the round of 16, um, and it went to extra time, possibly penalties. Um, and, you know, when games go to penalties, they could go either way. And you know, D- Denmark, um, you know, obviously lost out in that game, but you know, could easily have gone on the run that Croatia did in, in reaching the final. Very easy to say after the fact. Oh, they had Modric, they had um, Rakitic, and, and so on. But they were very close to elimination a- against Denmark, and so the, the way that these tournaments play out and the narratives that they generate can't, aren't always necessarily reflective of how good these teams really are, or in some cases, you know, how, how bad they are. Um, and, and Denmark. Possibly a, a bit of a sleeper. Well, can I ask a, just a question, just on the the model, as much as you're able to share with it as well, just because I'm interested in some of the sort of variation parts. Is that let's say, for example, Maguire, it, it's soon found out that Maguire and Henderson aren't going to play the first, at least maybe game or two for England. I know obviously that's the point of having larger squads, and we can come on to sort of player load and issue, in issues and injuries in due course. Does the model um, become as sort of intuitive and as nuanced as that, which is depending on injuries, um, hours before kickoff, then th- those potential permutations changing on a sort of hour by hour basis once your data set gets richer as things go? 
Yeah, great question, Van. I think the, the way it's currently set up, it's more looking at because um, historical data as much as possible. So with players, we'll be looking at, you know, the last six months and, and looking at which players have played a lot of minutes for, for um, England and then kind of taking the performance level that they're at. I think you're spot on that kind of having a model that tweaks um, um, tweaks as the tournament kind of goes on would be another kind of enhancement. But I think one of the tricky things would be is that if you do have a Maguire that kind of comes into the England squad on the third game, there's a question of how fit is, is that player. So perhaps, let's say if we rate him at X quality, he might not actually be able to play at that quality. So then it makes it a bit more, if you really want it to, you know, um, if you really want the model to behave in the right way, you'd want to really understand what level Maguire is coming in at that specific game. So I think for that reason, we try to mainly look at kind of historical um, performance of those players um, rather than kind of adjust it game by game because I imagine you'd see a lot more, again, variance in the predictions of those players. But I, I think you're right. You know, if like a Ronaldo doesn't start for Portugal in a game, the market will obviously um, adjust um, in terms of the probability that Portugal could win that game, for instance. Yeah, and I think it's it's always a little bit surprising. I mean, you can see this in, in betting markets and, and it's in our models as well. But, you know, if there is a big name player that misses out, it's, it's always amazing to see how little the market moves on individual players. Um, we often describe it after the fact how crucial individual players are. But, but actually, in reality, um, you know, it, very few players move the needle massively uh, for their team. So... Uh, yes, um, you know Henderson might be a, a blow for, for England, but Declan Rice has been performing really well. There's, there's Jude Bellingham as well. He's obviously coming on a huge amount. So normally the delta between players isn't quite as big as, as what we often assume. Um, but but it, useful pivot onto the topic of um, player load with with this tournament obviously being off the back of a really condensed season. Um, I mean, we've had so many injuries this year, um, Arel. What are what are some of the the numbers behind the, the amount of effort that player's been putting in coming into into this tournament? Yeah, I think player load is an interesting one, as I say. So I think um, obviously going into this tournament, teams have still played the same number of games like clubs that that we have seen before, but it's tended to be quite condensed. So we see quite a few things. So one of them is um, the average rest days per player. So the three months leading up to international tournaments since 2010, we had a look at the data and how many rest days players were getting. So we can see this summer that an average player going to the Euros only had about 3.9 days rest in the three months just before the Euros. And now if we look at 2016, that's about 4.5 days. So it's actually quite, quite a bit of a difference. So players have been playing a lot more regularly that obviously increases the, the chance that a player gets injured or, again, isn't able to perform at the levels that they might have been doing during the season. Um, and you've got players like Ruben Diaz and Bakio Saka that have actually had rest days on average about 2.7. So, you know, those players have been really playing kind of, um, week, especially if they've got the midweek games, really, really often. Um, so I think it's definitely going to play a role. And interestingly, England come out on top in terms of the average uh, minutes played per player since the beginning of the season at about 3,700. So, yeah, I mentioned to you both before, thinking obviously don't win, we cannot, we can come up with that excuse around legged players. But as I said, I think it's going to be an, an, an interesting one. And we can see in the data that this year players are going to the tournament, having played a lot more games, especially in the last kind of few months. Uh, I'm going to get... Uh, I can see Siobhan's requested uh, to, to speak. I don't think I've actually done this before um, on uh, on, uh, on Twitter Spaces. Oh, and he's left. Siobhan, are you with us? Uh, or you might have with, with, withdrawn your uh, 
desire to come on stage. But no, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, I, I think there's always a trade. I think in the past with England players, we've often been concerned with, you know, where are the England players in the latter stages of the Champions League and Europa League? Because um, if you look back in, you know, between the years of say uh, twenty, well, between kind of twenty thirteen and 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 maybe twenty eighteen or so. It was obviously dominated by Spanish and German players, but in recent years, we've had so many. In the last couple of seasons, we've had so many more English players playing in in Champions League and Europa League finals. Um, but of course, yeah, and we want that from from an English fan perspective. Um, but we, on the flip side of that, going into this tournament, is that the players tend to be a bit more, a bit more fatigued. Uh, I, I can see Prakat has requested as well. So I'm going to try it here. Prakati, with are you with us? I can see it's connecting. Uh, if so, have you got a question for us? Hello. Hi there. You got a question for us? Hey, um, hey. So I have a question for Daniel. Um, so uh, not a bit more on the sportive side, I guess. But then, uh, uh, who do you think? Uh, um, I mean, how do you think uh, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold's uh, uh, injury is going to affect England, and how? Uh, and who do you think Ben White is the Correct replacement for the same, or would you go with Ward Prowse? Thanks, Prakash, for the question. Um, yeah, I think uh, Omar and I have had uh, plenty of uh, discussions on this over well the last uh, the last spaces we did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think there's there's obviously controversy around br- bringing the amount of right backs that we did full stop. Um, whilst Trent was included in the um, in the extended squad and then in the in the twenty six man squad. Um, the the point I guess generally was that there were players, uh, Reese James, Walker that could play um, in a back three on the on the right hand side. Uh, Trippier could play uh, left wing back as well, which gives more flexibility. And then they obviously mentioned that Trent could play in centre midfield, although he's never done that at elite level for Liverpool. So, you know, the injury gave Southgate a bit of a a more convenient um, uh, or non-issue really to have. And obviously White coming in. White, again, is a versatile player. Um, you know, I've seen him play at centre-back, um, centre-mid for Leeds, um, in, the, in the, the wide areas of a back three as well. But I think it, it does, um, Aurel, just an interesting point I was going to follow on to you and then to Omar as well, bring up an interesting one around the sort of 26-man squad point. Um, you know, the, the, I remember Omar writing, I think, a while back about you know the the twentieth, twenty first, twenty second, or and twenty third um, squad members getting virtually zero um, and zero game time. You know, with that extended number, do you think that um, that there's going to be more um, rotation for squads at later rounds, more possibility for rotation, or is it really just an insurance policy in case of a couple of significant injuries, and then there might be the slight incremental possibility of um, those players getting a little bit of uh, time that they otherwise wouldn't? Um, yeah, I can quickly kind of start on that point. So I think yeah, I think you're spot on, Dan, in terms of you know those bigger squads and those players um, at the back end of the, of the kind of ranking don't actually end up playing that much. Uh, kind of looking at data from 2004, we can see that the 18th, 19th, and 20th outfield player for a team in terms of minutes played at a tournament is around like below around 20 minutes. So you know the chances of those added players uh, and, and a few teams like Spain, I think, have actually not even called up the 20 to 26 players. So as I say, the chances of those players actually even playing half a game is, is quite low. Um, so I do think, um, you know, Ben White coming in is, is a good addition. As you say, he's very, very versatile. But 
Um, I think if England kind of um, they'll try to play their strongest squads as much as they can and if they do I think players like Ben White might struggle for minutes and as I say players that are kind of um, at the bottom of the ranking in terms of um, being added to the squad as a utility player they tend to not actually get many minutes historically but um, yeah I'll pass him to him if he has anything else like. Yeah I think it depends on obviously that third game uh, whether you want to rest and rotate and I think England at Euro 2016, Gary Neville made a big point around, you know, England teams were always knackered, we have to rest and rotate, and he, England tried that, I think, against Slovakia and against Wales. I think they played kind of almost like mix and match teams, if I remember that correctly. Uh, and it, I mean, it sort of backfired, didn't it, um, in terms of both results, and obviously where England ended up in the, in the tournament. Um, but, but then England used it very well against... Um, against Belgium at the World Cup where they rest, you know, almost gave up the match against Belgium to a degree, came in the other half of the draw and ended up with a much more favourable draw in order to, to reach the semi-finals. Um, with the format, you can end up, I think the third game will tend to matter in terms of where you finish in the group. Um, obviously, it depends on, on what the other results are. But, um, yeah, in general, I, I can't, you know... The key thing about those fringe players in the squad is is the amount is what they contribute to training. We we hear from football clubs all the time that yeah we don't we don't think our third goalkeeper is going to play, but we often like getting in an experienced goalkeeper because it keeps the standards really high in training, um, which which explains why a lot of the time you know Man City have like a Scott Carson in, in training as a as a squad player as an example because they feel it adds a lot more to to the squad. They don't think Scott Carson's ever going to play, but he but he's an excellent trainer. So. Um, yeah, there's all these kind of non-obvious dynamics that that come to play with um, with squad players. Uh, I can see I'm going to give Siobhan another go here um, to ask a question. Uh, if I invite to speak, uh, uh, I'm now hitting all kinds of buttons on my phone. Uh, I'll ask a question of Oriel just in the meantime while Omar is is doing his best. <laughs> Oriel, do um, and maybe it's the same for Omar. Is it still? I mean, I'm completely ignorant of this. Is it still three um, uh, substitutions? Are there any extra ones for extra time or particular things that have obviously happened in different stages and phases of this season? Only just for thinking, then you might be more likely to have the opportunity to use more of the squad if there are more subs or the possibility of more subs at particular times. Yeah, good question. So I, I think from my understanding that teams will be allowed to use a maximum of five substitutes at Euro 2020. So there is obviously as well the likelihood of you actually coming on now increases, even though you've got a few more players on the bench. So there is obviously that dynamic. And I think this season, looking at the big five leagues, apart from England, obviously, that did have the the five subs, we have seen those teams actually spread minutes a lot more across a, lot, a number of different players. So going back to that player load element, I think, again, there's an argument to be made that players in the Premier League have, have you know, played um, perhaps a bit a bit more minutes from that kind of angle. But I think, as you say, the five substitutes could be quite interesting. But we haven't actually seen, even in the Big Five, although they're spreading minutes more, um, the number of teams that do use five substitutes isn't as high as you might expect. So there's obviously a, a, a different question around, you know, changing the dynamics of the game whilst the match is happening. You don't want to kind of change the whole team setup. So I, I think it's, yeah, there, there's, as I almost said, there's other kind of um, dynamics in play that probably aren't as obvious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about um, the way, the, the kind of delta between the fifth player that you're taking off. So if you assume you take off weaker players first and you get towards better players and you bring on stronger players first and you get towards weaker players. So the delta between 
the fifth substitute off and the fifth substitute on tends to be much larger than the first sub off and the first sub on, which is why I think it's not not utilised as much as we expect. Uh, Siobhan, I can see you've joined us uh, on stage. Have you got a question for uh, Arel, myself, Dan? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so my question is, do you realistically think that England will pass the round of 16 stage considering if they win the group, they're going to probably face one of France, Germany or Portugal. What are your thoughts on that round of 16 matchup? I think it comes... I'll, I'll jump in first and I'll turn to Arel. Um I think it comes down to that home advantage point um, and the degree to which it exists. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw in the big five leagues, that there were some games obviously with fans, some games without fans. And with, in the Premier League and in League A, there was basically no home advantage when there was no fans. But at the moment there were some fans in the ground, there was a home advantage. I think it was like a six to 10 percentage point increase um, in home advantage for, uh, for home teams. Uh, and so the question is, does that exist at international level uh, when player, you know, these players aren't necessarily playing week in, week out at Wembley, so they don't have that familiarity factor? Um, and, and obviously, what is the kind of multiplicative effect of the fans coming into the ground? So, I don't know. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic as, as an England fan that home advantage is being a bit underrated in, in this tournament and actually it will, um, it will play a part in, in how well we progress. Yeah, I'll just quickly add on to that. So, I think with our models, we kind of you know, um, for, for England, kind of reaching the last 16 is about 94%, but then the chances that they win the last 16 is about 55%. So that does obviously tell you that there is quite a big delta between the two. And as you say, there, there's a lot of strong teams that they could be playing in that round. But going back to a point Omar made earlier, I think at international tournaments, so many um, that the kind of finer details are really, really important, a lot more than perhaps club football, especially league football. Um, so, again, being a uh, kind of cautiously optimistic England fan here, I still think that, you know, if, um, that they have a decent chance. Um, but again, the, the model does understand that they are going to be playing quite strong uh, teams at, at that stage. So it's going to be extremely difficult for them. Yeah, great. I think, yeah, the, the draw in the Euros is particularly fascinating because you do end up with these kind of... Um, asymmetries where the winner of Group C won't end up playing the winner of another group until the semi-finals potentially, whereas um, as same with the winner of Group uh, F, but the winner of Group A might end up playing you know, a, a, a number of more games against other group winners. And But I think the, the thing with international tournaments is that they're always, they never quite go quite as you expect. You, know, you, you can always sit here and and look at the wall chart and go, yeah, well, they're going to come there, they're going to come there, they're going to play each other, it's going to be really obvious. And it, it just never pans out like that because the odds, you know, the odds are such that, you know, it will never kind of accumulate to that that overall result. So, yeah, be really be really fascinating. Um, we've put our predictions on the line. Dan, Aurel, any other final thoughts to add ahead of Friday? All good from my side. I'm looking forward to some more games of football. I'm not sure we've... Uh, we, it's, it's been a good six or seven days since um, we've, I've watched anything. So um, I'm feeling a little bit missing. Although, to be fair, I have watched a few England games. <laughs> so I haven't even had that break. So long may continue. Yeah, same for me. I'm really looking forward to it. As I say, I'll still be imagining what the England uh, side of uh, 11 right-backs could do in the tournament. So yeah, best of luck to all teams. All right, I'm looking forward to you posting what the 11th right back for England would have been, to be fair, on your Twitter feed in the next few hours, please. Okay, I will do that. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for, for dialing in, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again during the Euros. Thanks for listening. 
You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.